Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm very happy to have all of you with us today. We've got a great panel to talk about uh, lots of good issues, so let's get right to them. Uh, Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the boss of the AJC, is our Thursday partner on the show. And Kevin, glad to have you here today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Bill. Glad to be here and uh, looking forward to today's show. Yeah. Uh, Well, it should be a good one. Donna Lowry, who is the host of Lawmakers on GPB-TV, which you watch at 7 o'clock on uh, nights when the legislature is in session, is with us. Donna, I said before the show to you, you're doing double duty for us. Thanks for being here this morning. I'm glad to do it. I, you know, I enjoy doing this show, and I, I think just talking politics all the time just kind of fuels me, so it's good. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> I'm glad it fuels you. It just tires me out. <laughs> but it is, of course, it is, of course, important. Um, uh, Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science at Georgia State University and and uh, the associate chair of the political science department at Georgia State, uh, joins us. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm doing well, Bill. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We also should uh, tell people, we've mentioned this in the past, but not this year. You also oversee the um, intern program down at the state capitol, right? So you're really busy this time of year. Yes. So there is a statewide, uh, it's the Georgia Legislative Internship Program. We have every year somewhere between 45 to 55 uh, college juniors and seniors who work full-time at the Georgia legislature, and it is an amazing opportunity. So anyone who is listening and knows someone, uh, think about spending your spring doing that and getting some hands-on experience. I, I love that. Um, and we're joined by the dean of political science professors, not just in Georgia, really in the southeast, Charles Bullock, who has more p- political history of Georgia just at the front of his mind than most of us will ever be able to uh, absorb. Thanks for being here today, Chuck. Well, thank you, Bill. It's always a pleasure to be with you all. Okay, so let's get right to it. Um, Donna, I'm going to let you take the first shot at this, and then I want to get the whole panel involved. Um, There was some talk at the very beginning of the session, as I recall, that Republicans were saying they had passed such a sweeping election bill last year, SB 202, which had created so much controversy that they thought that this was a year to not do a whole lot on uh, on uh, uh, election laws. And yet, with crossover day uh, coming up next Tuesday, which is, as we've discussed on the show before, the day after which uh, a bill cannot uh, pass one house and go to the other, uh, they, they put together, the House introduces a 40-page election reform bill. Just give us a little uh, uh, look at what that bill is all about. 
Yeah, this uh, bill did take people by surprise that because we hadn't seen it. But, of course, as you know, as crossover day approaches, things come out of the woodwork that we are not expecting. So, yeah, 40-page bill. Um, it went quickly to the Special Committee on Elections Integrity um, for its initial in- introduction yesterday. That hearing lasted for more than two hours, two hours and 20 minutes. There were some people who weren't even able to make it because they, um, of the last-minute aspect to it. So, uh, so anyway, there will be a, a, another hearing to, today to finish off the hearing on this. I listened to some of it. It cleans up aspects of SB 202, that law, and especially some of the confusing aspects of it in terms of chain of custody of ballots. Some of the requests came in from elections directors to make some changes to the law. Um, They ran into all kinds of difficulties, including not being really clear on aspects of the new law and things like how to report on absentee ballots. Part of the SB 202 asks that they have, they give by 10 p.m. on election night an idea of how many absentee ballots were still left to count. Well, they found that that became a problem because they were counting, they still had to count the same date ballots. And so so it kind of loosens their um, need to have to report by 10 p.m. on that. Uh, it does require a lot of ballot inspections. Uh, right now, it takes a judge's order to unseal a ballot and be able to um, to be able to look at that a ballot. Uh, it takes away that requirement, and it also takes um, more investigations. The investigation um, ability and authority out of the Secretary of State's office, and in this case, it gives it to the GBI, to the Georgia Bureau of Investigations. And so they will have subpoena powers and that kind of thing. And a few of the people who testified yesterday talked about the fact that this will intimidate election workers when they're subpoenaed by the GBI as opposed to the uh, Secretary of State's office. Interestingly enough, one of the people who presented the bill yesterday was from the Secretary of State's office. So there's some of that. The other part of that is there were some people who were in favor of it. Um, For instance, James Woodall, who used to be with the NAACP but is now for the Southern Center for Human Rights, said that they are neutral on this bill. Um, He he actually thanked the sponsor for bringing the bill because it does clean up some of the language surrounding the SB 202 law. So that was interesting. But as I said, uh, there was somebody supposed to be there from the New Georgia Project. They elections group founded by Stacey Abrams, and uh, she had a conflict and couldn't be there. So she'll probably be somebody from that organization will be there today. So a lot a lot of this became yeah. as a surprise at the end. I, I want to be Kevin uh, as Mark Nisi, your, your uh, reporter down at the Capitol who covers election issues, uh, uh, wrote this morning. Uh, there are some significant uh, new uh, concepts in this bill. It isn't just a housekeeping measure to clean up things from last year. And of course, Donna m- made that point clear. I mean, among other things, Kevin, this bill would allow public inspection of actual printed ballots, um, which uh, uh, some of the election uh, officials who have been looking at the measure say is really going to tangle them 
in a, a bureaucracy where a group could come in, demand to look at ballots without needing a judge's uh, approval. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's a sweeping measure in some ways, Kevin. Yeah, Mark quotes uh, State Rep. James Burchett um, from Waycross, Republican from Waycross, who says the intent of the bill is to address issues that we've seen in the elections process. And um, I think the intent of the bill, uh, beyond the cleanup part, which uh, I mean, I, I think most people agree was somewhat necessary, is really to uh, continue this idea that we've had these kinds of problems with voter fraud when we haven't had them. I mean, I, you know, I don't know how else to say it. I, I, I think it's hard to argue that the public ought to have access to records government creates, I mean, when it comes to elections. But what did we really see in the aftermath of the election? We saw people making up stuff, demanding, making all these demands of the election process, elections officials, then of the courts. And literally none of them, none of the, the things they thought they sought to try to prove voter fraud turned out to be even close to true. So when we have a state rep saying we want to address things we've seen in the election process, no, we're addressing things we say or we thought or some thought happened in the elections process. So it's, again, a solving a, it's a solution working for uh, looking for a problem. Uh, Chuck and then Amy weigh in on this. Play off a bit of what Kevin was saying there, you know, uh, the rationale behind SB 202 last year, and apparently part of the rationale behind this new legislation, is that it is to restore faith in the electoral system. Okay. Have we had much success in that? I mean, the bill was passed last year. It made changes that were in place this year for largely municipal elections. And yet a poll was done by one of my colleagues, and it was done for the AJC, uh, back in January, found that most Republicans still looking forward to 2022, do not expect that the 2022 election is going to be fairly and accurately done. So here we are, supposedly, as Kevin says, patching holes that maybe don't exist anyway, and yet those patches are not providing any kind of reassurance for, for Republican voters. And 74% of Republican voters continue to believe the, the Trump lie that the elections were tainted by fraud last year. So, you know, they... My guess is that this rationale is not going to be satisfied with this new bill. After this is put in place, it's not going to be that uh, Republicans who are suspicious and say, okay, now I'm happy. I'm, I'm now confident that these future elections are going to be you know, fair and, and, and accurate. Amy? And I think sort of building on that, there's sort of two sides. So on the one hand, what the bill does add in that wasn't really there previously is very clear protections for threats against uh, election workers, which is something, I mean, so that's sort of been in there, but it adds even much more so with intimidation. And so that's really good because they have been under attack um, and sometimes in ways that go towards right, physical attacks and, and things like that. But on the other side, it is also um, going off of what Chuck and Tim were talking about, sort of a solution in search of a problem. Um, there are ways in which the bill presumes that, in fact, election workers are not doing the things that they're supposed to, right? The uh, adding in of additional steps of chain of custody and things like that suggests that they're not already doing that, right? They already have to sign for this, but now it is uh, putting in many more steps to be able to do it. Um, it's taking away potentially the ability to get outside funds 
to help with election administration and is giving to the State Board of Elections sole authority to decide where those funds should go, even if right that doesn't match up to what's actually happening on the ground. And there's no um, ability right for the election boards to say, wait, no, we really need those funds. And so that could be concerning as well, because we know that, unfortunately, we doing elections is super important, but we also don't give the money that we need to the election boards to be able to do it. And one of the things with this bill is it will add additional work that they all have to do, um, which comes with additional costs, right? All of these public, if you're able to request, if anybody they want can request these ballots, that takes time and money. And Kevin, I want to pick up on, oh, yeah, oh, there you go, uh, Chuck, an unfunded mandate also uh, forbidding local election boards from taking money from nonprofit groups that may want to uh, help them administer their elections. Right, Chuck? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, I want to pick up on the on, on one aspect of this that I think is fascinating. The Brennan Center for Justice has released uh, the results of a poll in which they found that one out of five local election officials in the United States say they plan to leave their jobs before the 2024 presidential election. Um, the, uh, the center's director of elections at, at Brennan said, there's a crisis in election, in election administration. Election administrators are concerned they're not getting the support they need. And what's interesting about the poll is that it uh, looked at uh, officials, local officials from across the political spectrum, 26 percent say they were Democrats, 30 percent Republicans, 44 percent said they were independents. So it, it's probably not surprising with all of the pressure and the focus of attention on local election officials uh, since the 2020 election that there are a lot of people who are saying, I'm getting out. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, think, I think it's part of, of this bigger trend, right, that somehow in our society we've decided that um, those of us who have um, just a little bit of knowledge about something are just as expert as people who've spent their lives doing something, whether people work in public health, whether they work in education, whether they work in elections. Somehow, you know, just uh, watching the right uh, news channel makes you even smarter than someone who's done that for this time. And I think that wears that really wears people out. I think the Brennan uh, uh, Center um, research, though, is particularly startling because, you know, of the, the, the joint partisan analysis of it. In other words, people on the front lines work hard. They care about what they do with elections. And they also are, you know, recruiting a lot of people for those big election nights and, and that's challenging. And to work that hard to do it as well as they have, and then to be attacked. I mean, why would anybody put up put up with that? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> All right. Um, we'll watch how that bill moves forward. But uh, Donna, my, my my assumption is that you drop a bill like this, a big big package, late in the cycle before crossover day, it moves quickly. It it appears this thing is. Um, probably on a fairly fast track to get approved and go go to the governor for signature, yes? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is where you, they drop it late. It, it's a fast train running. Mm-hmm. It's hard for people who are opposed to it to get on the board, and it just kind of makes it its way in. The other thing I was going to say, I was in an event recently, and they were 
just begging people to apply to be poll workers. They, you know, so there's, there's this, this feeling that, you know, we've got to really get some people in there because of what you just uh, talked about. Yeah, it All used right, to be the poll workers were, poll workers tend to be older talk. folks. Now, increasingly, what I'm hearing, I mean, not in large numbers, but that some of my students have worked as poll workers even when they were in high school. So that uh, it's a very different kind of personnel that you're getting in there. And again, they're very eager. Uh, they wouldn't necessarily have the experience of the person who's been doing it, say, for 10 or 20 years. The same kind of problem yeah, by I, giving this over to the GBI is what experience do they have in policing elections? None. Yeah, and, and, and I'm glad you made that point, Chuck, because one of the things we did not mention is that uh, there are elect, local election officials who are saying, uh, hey, the Secretary of State's office already has the machinery necessary, uh, Amy, to, to look at, to investigate. That there's this added layer, which, by the way, Speaker David Ralston is very eager to put in place. It's one part of the bill we know he is, is uh, strongly supportive of. Uh, it, it's an additional layer of law enforcement that the Secretary of State's office, some believe, could have handled all, can handle all of this. Well, currently they are handling it. And I think one of the things that might be concerning, again, going back to sort of Kevin's thought of the sort of solution in search of a problem, is that there have not been any uh, concerns raised that the Secretary of State's office has not been able to ac accurately look into these types of issues and do it. And there is something different when it is a sort of administrative oversight as opposed to uh, an entity that comes in with the ability to arrest you and throw you in jail, especially when you're talking about many times, honestly, volunteers, right? These are people who are amazing and give up their days so that they can go and do this and help the elections run. And back to sort of what Donna was saying is it's almost impossible right now to recruit people to do it. And this will make it even harder if what they're worried about is that they might be thrown in jail, even if that's not yeah. where it might end up. If that's what they think is going to happen, that's of concern. Kevin, last word before we move on. Well, one of the favorite things that the uh, legislature likes to do is pass a lot of laws to which others are subject. Um, and, and meanwhile, they, the legislature itself is not subject to the open records law. And I wonder how they'd feel about um, the GBI being in charge of any ethics violation that's reported about each of them. It would be it would be very different. So. <laughs> All right. Thank you for that, Kevin Riley. Uh, Donna, uh, David Perdue was down at the Capitol yesterday. He plunked down his money and became an official candidate for the Republican nomination for governor. Um, of course, uh, he's uh, he yesterday told reporters what he's been saying from the start. Uh, I'm the one who can unite the Republican Party, and I'm the only candidate who can beat uh, Stacey Abrams in the fall. Brian Kemp can't do it. Donna? Yeah, it was interesting, you know, at the Capitol during qualifying, the lar the big candidates come in and the, the major candidates, you see all these lawmakers surrounding them in support, that kind of thing. There's photo ops they want, you know, to use with their campaigns. Uh, some of them just simply want to show their support. But you didn't see that yesterday when um, David Perdue came in there. He, um, there, people have... You know, the people who are supporting Brian Kemp or people who are just not sure whether they want to align with Purdue at this point that were not there while he was when he was qualifying. And so it was uh, kind of interesting. Um, one of the things that was 
what that he did have was that it was Scouts Day at the Capitol, so he was able to have a lot of supporters, um, you know, a lot of photo ops with these young people. But uh, mostly it was a lot of journalists around him interested in what he had to say. And as you said, a lot of it was a lot of what we've already heard from him. Chuck, uh, one of the quotes from uh, uh, Purdue yesterday is, I just don't see how Brian is going to pull together all the Republican Party to stand up against Stacey. They're too upset about too many things right now. I believe based on what we did in 2020, I'm the guy that can pull us together. To be quite candid, I'm not quite sure what he means about 2020, since by the runoff in 2021, he had lost his United States Senate yeah. seat. <laughs> Right, yeah. Uh, so he, in most recent effort out, he, he was a loser. Uh, Brian was a winner, and Brian did beat, beat Stacey. I think maybe what that's guiding uh, some of Purdue's thinking, and I haven't seen the poll, but I've heard there's a poll out there that shows a share of, like the Republican voters say, they would not vote for Brian Kemp under any circumstance. Now, mm. if indeed that is accurate, if push came to shove, those voters were to follow through on that, yeah, that might give him a reason to believe you know, that he is the person. On the other hand, that recent poll that came out, I believe, from Fox News for the first time shows Brian at 50 percent. Now, the old the adage is that if you've got an incumbent who's below 50 percent, that incumbent is in trouble. Brian's been under 50 percent until this point. He's now beginning, it looks like, to make a move so that if uh, Purdue is going to be able to, to catch him, to derail him, uh, he's got to get money very quickly, and he's got to begin to convince voters. And I guess his hope is, as you know, hard in the hole may be, Tell those voters that I am you know, Donald Trump's candidate, and certainly that's what we're seeing on television now with a great deal of frequency. You know, if that doesn't work for him, then you know, it's, it's hard to see how he, he, he wins the primary. Amy, let's, uh, let me give some of the numbers of, of the Fox News poll that uh, Chuck just uh, referred to. Um, the, the survey shows that Kemp has an 11-point edge in the Republican primary. He is, as Chuck said, at 50 percent among GOP primary voters, while Purdue is at 39 percent. One of the things that also is, I think, interesting about this poll, there's only like 10 percent of Republican voters out there that say they'll either support another candidate or they don't know what they'll do. And, and you know that when we all look at polling, um, one of the things we look at is how, mu- how much is out there that could still be persuaded one way or the other. If, in fact, this Fox News poll is correct, then that doesn't give David Perdue a whole lot of room for growth. It definitely doesn't. And this is one of the areas sort of earlier polls suggested there was a much larger group of undecided primary voters. And now it looks like things are really starting to um, solidify and it doesn't give Purdue um, a lot of room there. I think the other issue that he'll have to sort of really answer is sort of back to kind of his comments, you know, of um, that he's the one that can bring people together is, you know, how do you, how are you when you are challenging the sitting incumbent governor being the one who is not trying to be uh, divisive? Um, and how is that going to work, especially if you try to do uh, then move to the sort of statewide campaign that's going to go in there? But I think that that's the biggest one. I mean, so earlier, I think Purdue uh, was probably banking on the fact that there had been an earlier poll that suggested very few of the Republican primary voters knew that he was endorsed by Trump. And his hope was that once they learned that, that would start to shift. But I think what we're now seeing is that 
uh, that information has been learned and it's still it's not giving him the advantage that he was hoping for. Um, and more importantly, it's not giving him the fundraising advantage that he was hoping it would give him. Um, my understanding is that I think Brian Kemp just put out a five million dollar ad buy, which is more money than uh, for the next couple of weeks, which is actually more money than uh, Purdue has raised overall, which is a really pretty big deficiency. Kevin. Well, a couple of things, Bill. First, that reference to 2020 confused me, and I've been thinking about it since uh, early this morning. Here's what I think he must mean. Recall that in the general election, he actually had more votes than John Ossoff. I think about 90,000. But, right. you know, we had mm-hmm. that. But it wasn't 50 percent. It was 49.7 or something like that. So I think mm-hmm. that's his argument, that he outpolled his rival in 2020 before the runoff. And that's why he said 2020 instead of 2021. I mean, it's kind of thin, but uh, I guess that's what he's holding on to. And then I would just say, um, you know, we're reporting this morning that, you know, the governor is going to go qualify. And um, uh, uh, Greg Bluestein, I'm sure, got a, uh, a little bit of a scoop on what the governor plans to say. And apparently the governor's plan is to ignore David Perdue in his comments yep. and only talk about Stacey Abrams. And I think that tells you something as well. Uh, Absolutely. Um, uh, Let me add another couple of figures, uh, Donna, from this Fox News poll. Um, The the poll found, I guess it's not at all surprising, that 79% of Georgia Republican voters view Trump uh, favorably, while 19% uh, have a negative view of Trump. But among GOP voters with an unfavorable view of Trump, Purdue is well behind uh, Kemp, 15 percent to 70 percent. But let's add to this, Donna, that right now, look, I've said this a number of times on the show, Donna, um, all that everything seems to suggest momentum for Brian Kemp in fundraising, in the polling that we've seen. But it strikes me that you really have to be careful about making assumptions that, tr- that, that Purdue is in trouble because he does have Donald Trump's support, that Trump vote out there is a powerful, loyal base. He's going to Mar-a-Lago next week for a big fundraiser. Trump's going to be here apparently later in the month. So let's be careful, I think, Donna, about saying that this thing is over when it's not. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, Brian Kemp has momentum right now because the General Assembly is in session, certainly, and a lot of his bills. But, um, you know, just like, you know, back when we thought uh, Trump didn't have the momentum to become president and a lot of people kind of discounted a lot of what was going on, I think we've got to think about that when we come to when it comes to Purdue and in terms of the the momentum that may build as the, as the um, as as we get closer to the primary election and with Trump coming in and uh, the, so much um, so much of the Trump factor is still unknown and that you know there's the polling is still high when it comes to those who are in favor of um, anybody who is connected with Trump so I think you know we we can't say that uh, that this is over you're right that that. Um, Brian Kemp does have momentum right now, and a lot of that has to do with what's going on under the Gold Dome. Chuck, final word before yeah, that, the break. Yeah, that, uh, that uh, AJC poll back in January showed about 45% of Republican voters said that Trump is an important cue for them, as opposed to only 14% who said it wasn't. The other 40% weren't sure. And the other point I want to make is that 
know, Trump's got this team that has been talked about on the show a number of times that are running. If Trump's team does not do well in Georgia, whether it be in the primary or in the general election, that's going to be a message that's going to be sent out across the nation because Georgia's going to get a tremendous amount of coverage for both our gubernatorial and our senatorial election this coming year. So if the Trump team stumbles here, that's going to take a lot of air out of the Trump balloon and perhaps some real implications for his possible candidacy in 2024. You know, Chuck, I've got to get to a break, but I want to follow up on, uh, on that with you. There, there, I've had this question in my mind about I get Trump's strength going to the 2022 midterm elections. But as you point out, he's got a lot at stake in terms of the candidates he's endorsed. Uh, plus, by the end of 2022, the fake election, the fraudulent election is going to be wearing thin. And I can't help but wonder, Chuck, if after 2022, the Trump bubble may really start to burst and Republicans may free themselves from his control of the party. I think that's exactly what may happen. Right. You know, and if he does poorly here, if Liz Cheney wins in Wyoming, things like that, then yeah, the Trump mystique will be over. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. A lot more to talk about when we come back. We need to talk about Stacey Abrams. So let's do that in just a moment. You're listening to Political Rewind. Amy Staggerwall, Chuck Bullock, Donna Lowry, and Kevin Riley uh, join us for Political Rewind today. As we do the show live at about 9.35 on Thursday morning, we can report Brian Kemp is now qualified. Uh, he's been down there uh, and uh, filed his paperwork to run for re-election. And, of course, we'll talk tomorrow on the show about just what he had to say as he uh, talked to reporters at qualifying and uh, uh, reframed the race now that he is an official candidate. But Kevin Riley, um, you know, we've focused so much attention on the Republican side of the governor's race, largely because Stacey Abrams, until fairly recently, uh, hadn't declared her candidacy. And uh, now, though, that she has qualified, she's set to get out there on the campaign trail. She's going to begin in the days ahead, a one Georgia tour. It starts, I think, next week. And she's going to uh, a, an interesting choice of cities. Albany, Athens, Atlanta, Augusta, Columbus, Cuthbert, Midway, Thomasville, and Warner Robins. So a lot of this is smaller uh, cities in the state. And, and the one Georgia tour title that she's given it uh, speaks to what she said all along. There are, there are things about me that you may not necessarily appreciate. You may not think of me as your candidate, but the issues I'm running on are good for all of Georgia. Kevin? Yeah, it is an interesting uh, choice, and I think that got a lot of people's attention. Um, I, I will tell you, Bill, this topic is why I was excited to be on the show this morning with our two political scientists. Because I have a question. I'll start, you know, talking to Amy first and then I'll let her in, and then Chuck weigh in. So we have this we, we have this Democratic candidate who, who came very, you know, in a very tight race lost last time. She has no challenge in the primary. Meanwhile, the Republicans are beating each other up. She has what looks like all the money she could possibly need. And we know that, you know, it used to be that the candidate who could absolutely take money like that and dominate the television airwaves would would really have the advantage. But that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. So, Amy, what if you're if you were advising Stacey Abrams or, or, or as you observe this, 
What is she going to do? What should she do? What do you see happening here if she is going to win this time? I think a couple things. One is going to be that what we know matters most is getting your people to turn out. So it is not necessarily just running uh, television ads, but it is turnout efforts. It's grassroots mobilization. That is probably the thing that she is best at. And one of the reasons why she came as close as she did last time was that she created really a uh, statewide turnout effort. And so I think we're going to start to see that picked up. I think we're going to start to see ads that are not necessarily on television, but through other means, social media, right? That type of thing, which is really more geared towards turnout and um, things like that. I think it's also for right now, what to be perfectly blunt, she wants to do. I know Cody Hall had a um, sort of quote that sort of David Perdue's campaign was a in-kind contribution to her. Uh, He's not wrong. Right. He doesn't need to spend any money right now. There is no reason to do so. There is no reason to um, have to really get out there. She can let them really harm each other. And then part of what she can do is sort of see, okay, which of the attacks that they used against each other seem to most damage the person who won. And then that's what she can pick up on while also sort of staying above the fray. So I would say, you know, being quiet right now, there isn't any reason to have to sort of put herself out to even – Um, one might say, sort of become a target, right? She can stay out of it while they hammer away at each other and then focus on that sort of turnout strategy. I apologize, Amy. Chuck? Yeah, this uh, tour she's going to do, certainly she's going to hit the urban area because that's the Democratic votes are. But I think it's interesting she's going to Cuthbert. My recollection is that's the location of one of the sites where a hospital closed over the last several years. A big part of what she's going to push is Medicaid and the expansion of Medicaid. Because had that been done, then these rural hospitals might still be operating. We know that most Georgians, yeah, most Georgians, they they did it, yeah. But I think B.B. Putney's still operating. But uh, most Georgians, uh, including most Republicans in some polls, favor this expansion of Medicaid. Now, what she's what she's got going for her are a number of things that the Republicans in the legislature have done which go contrary to what most Georgians want to see. Now, the tax on abortion, whether it be the six-week ban that was approved a couple of years ago or the idea of overturning Roe v. Wade, most Georgians don't agree with that. Most Georgians oppose that. Constitutional carry, very popular with legislators. And that's opposed by 70% of independent voters in Georgia. Eliminating drop boxes, making those more difficult. Yeah, legislatures can favor that. Republicans are. Uh, 80% plus of independents in Georgia say, don't do that. So she's got an awful lot that she can talk about without necessarily attacking Brian Kemp. And she can simply say, here is why you should vote for me. The positive message. Now, in time, sure. Probably when the super PACs weigh in, then we'll see plenty of attack ads leveled against the governor. But she can go out now, be positive, uh, and try to build her support. As Amy said, yeah. She's got to mobilize her, her supporters, make sure she gets into the polls. And then the final Trump card she has here is to play the same one she did four years ago, and that is arguing, hey, look, my supporters, those Republicans are trying to keep you from voting. And yet here is a new bill that just got introduced this year where, again, they're taking another swipe at you. So she's got plenty in her toolkit that she can use. You know, uh, what uh, Donna, what Chuck just said is especially interesting at the end there, I think, because 
Uh, there were legislative Republicans in the legislature who, before the session, said, we've had enough election law changes. We don't need to do more this year. And yet we now have this big omnibus bill. And I'm not hoping to I'm not trying to go back to that subject. But what what Chuck Bullock just said is is a point worth making that that's another one of the many things that uh, Stacey Abrams will have in her quiver to shoot at Republicans. But, Donna, let me throw this out. While Stacey Abrams came within 55,000 votes of Brian Kemp four years ago, they were both, uh, the, the office was empty. It was an open office. He's now the incumbent. The advantages that that gives him are a huge uh, moving forward. Yeah, and, I, you know, of course she knows that. And so she's got to she's work on, so she's had this big national presence for the last, you know, four years or so. And so now she has to, um, to make sure the Georgians recognize that she is a, a Georgia person, that she is working for them. And so going into these areas and doing some of that grassroots stuff that worked for her before is what she's going to focus on and making sure that she um, she takes advantage of it. it's sort of like the um, Republicans handed this bill to her uh, at a point where we know that is where a lot of her attention has been in the last few years. And now she can take that and run with it, but also dealing with the pandemic issues that came up that in terms of health care that she can focus on. And the big the big thing is expanding Medicaid that hasn't happened in the state. You know, Kevin, one other one last thing before we take a break. Um, uh, We've already made the point. Amy certainly made it strongly that turnout is everything in the upcoming election. Um, Our friend Alan Abramowitz has argued on this show many times that um, SB 202, which uh, um, opponents of the measure think could suppress Democratic votes is going to do just the opposite, that, in fact, it is going to energize in a very powerful way people to turn out uh, to vote for a a Stacey Abrams and other Democratic candidates. And uh, the test of that is still ahead of us, Kevin. Yeah, I mean, it's anybody's guess, I suppose, because you've heard so many theories on that. I would say that the awareness of that bill and those those changes seem to be extremely high. So that could matter. Um, but let's not forget, Brian Kemp has done a lot of things. Uh, you know, you've talked about the advantages of incumbency. I mean, taxes are being cut. Um, people are getting raises. Um, the state's budget's in good shape. The economy, there's a lot of good news about the Georgia economy. So, um uh, you know, I, I, it'll be fun for us, I mean, as journalists, because it's going to be a, a heck of a race. And and a couple of very quick things. Uh, Chuck Bullock, there's also the President Biden approval ratings, which, although they seem to be trending up just a little in the aftermath of the State of the Union speech and now with the invasion of Ukraine, uh, still have him way, way underwater and could be a drag on Democrats in the fall here in Georgia. Absolutely. And the thing contributing to that, and this may trump all the other things, is G&G, gas and groceries. You know, what are you paying? Mm-hmm. Because those are elements that hit you every day. You, know, you may not be paying attention to a lot of the things we're talking about here, but you know what the price of a gallon of gas is. You know what you're paying for a gallon of milk. And if those continue to go up, 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 that may cancel everything else. Okay. You know what I think is interesting about that, Amy? And we got to get to a break, but I have to ask you this. Um, sure. 
it, you know, Kemp is offering, teachers are going to get the raises that he promised them when he ran for election. State workers are getting a big pay raise. Uh, law enforcement are getting pay raises. The, but there are a lot of people who argue, it, people in your profession, that those aren't issues that, that tend to, you, you've already gotten that raise. You don't have to vote for the person who gave it to you in the fall. But as Chuck Bullock points out, when inflation hits your grocery bill and your gas bill, that's a whole different matter. Yes. And so we definitely see those types of things being attached in what they're doing, which is why, for example, we're seeing both uh, Governor Kemp as well as Senator Warnock pushing for um, a temporary relief on the gas tax rate, something that can aid on that, right? Gas prices are going definitely to be affected by what is obviously going on overseas and by the fact that obviously gas companies don't necessarily have an incentive to uh, raise production when prices are going up, which means they make more money. And so one way to be able to affect that is um, that gas tax, because that you can point to. Mm -hmm. All right, let's do this. Uh, let's get to our final break of the show and come back with more on Political Rewind. We have with us today on the show one of the foremost experts in the country on redistricting and gerrymandering in Chuck Cook and an expert on, on the federal courts, Amy Steigerwald. So while I'd rather not get into the weeds on this, I am interested in, in the take that you two have, and then we'll bring Donna and Kevin Riley in, on the Supreme Court's refusal this week to block orders by courts in North Carolina and Pennsylvania um, it, it, had they ruled in favor of the challenges brought by Republicans, it would have, in North Carolina, in both states, expanded Republican districts in those states. But the Supreme Court uh, turned them away. Now, again, without getting in the weeds, Amy, um, there are an awful lot of people who talk about the politicization of the U.S. Supreme Court, and maybe they'll take this up again in a few months. But at least for the time being... Uh, it looks like Democrats came out ahead in uh, both of these uh, cases. Yes. So what we've seen here is a continuation of the ruling that the Supreme Court made back uh, with the Alabama case of it's too close to the election uh, to be able to sort of change track now. Right. That was also similar. There was a district court challenge to the new Georgia map and the district court judge following the Supreme Court's ruling that Alabama case. Right, said, nope, we're getting too close. Um, what is more important to watch is not the decision that they reached here, but the denial from or the dissent from denial that was written, joined by three of the justices and also then echoed in Kavanaugh's concurrence with the denial that they would like to change the Supreme Court's current interpretation of whether or not state courts can basically have oversight of the decisions made by state legislatures when it comes to the administration of elections. There's a judicial theory that suggests that the elections clause of the Constitution means state courts have no power to overrule what state legislatures do. And at least four of the justices suggested they would like to see that theory uh, revived, if not adopted. 
Uh, Chuck, just uh, to, to look at North Carolina in a very kind of brief, compacted way. What happened was the Republican legislature drew a map, despite the fact the state is pretty much evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans, which would allow Republicans to pick up two seats in Congress, giving them maybe 10 of the state's 14 seats. The state Supreme Court said it's invalid. Go, we're going to draw the map ourselves. So here the Republicans come to the U.S. Supreme Court and say, uh, you've got to throw that out. And the Supreme Court, at least for now, says, nope, sorry, uh, that map that Democrats challenged will stand. Troy, yeah. And so Democrats probably pick up two or three seats they wouldn't have gotten in North Carolina. They get one more probably out of Pennsylvania. Uh, this, as the game he said, is consistent with the Alabama decision. Um, and this challenge uh, that, you know, maybe you can't take this away from the legislature, well, that would go very much against uh, a decision out in Arizona from a number of years back where the decisions about this redistricting be given to an independent commission. The Supreme Court said, yeah, that's okay. Mm-hmm. And would also then go against uh, the Rucho decision, which was an earlier North Carolina case in which the Chief Justice said, yeah, we can't help you on issues of uh, of uh, partisan redistricting, a partisan gerrymandering here in the federal courts, so where you need to go, state courts. One last little yeah. footnote here. Although uh, the courts now, the Supreme Court is saying this is too late in the season, 40 years ago in Busby v. Smith, Georgia's redistricting plan for its congressional delegations was thrown out in July of that year, and they had to delay the elections. You may remember that bill in the 4th and 5th congressional districts. So this is kind of a new rule from the federal court saying, well, it's too close to the elections. Yeah. Um, You know, there's going to come a point where we're going to want to dig into this redistricting, the fight that's going to go on in the courts, including Georgia's own redistricting. Um, But the only point, Kevin, for today is, I think, uh, that um, that ever since the Supreme Court uh, said that uh, that uh, preclearance is no longer required. States like Georgia don't have to go to the Department of Justice to approve their maps and whatever. Um, there has been ongoing concerns about what role uh, the federal courts, the Supreme Court, really play uh, in, in redistricting and with the Supreme Court saying we won't rule on partisan issues. That's not our mandate here. Um, it, it, all of this remains up in the air. It certainly does, and we'll see what the courts do. But, I, you know, Bill, a little bit of uh, further information for listeners. The New York Times is reporting today that um, the way this is working out in a, in a departure from a decades-long pattern is that the congressional map is likely to be balanced between the, the two yeah. parties because of all of this. And so um, I do think the the change, you know, in uh, certainly that we've seen demographically in Georgia and elsewhere. Uh, I mean, again, our political science is on a way in, but it, in the end, it's it's very tough to stop that tidal wave of change. And uh, you can do some things to slow it down, but it looks like even that's not maybe working for Republicans in the way that they hoped. Okay, as I said, this is a kind of thing that we could devote a lot more time to, and we should in in the future on political rewind. But but I'd kind of like to take a look at a couple of other quick issues while we can. Um, so, Donna, it's interesting. Um, so many companies, including several Georgia companies, uh, quickly reacted to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Delta Airlines, 
uh, stopped what is essentially a partnership with uh, the, the state airline, Russian airline, Aeroflot, um, and uh, UPS said they were going to stop uh, doing business in Russia. Now, partly UPS said out of concern about the safety of our personnel over there. Um, and and Coca-Cola seemed to take a little longer to decide what they wanted to do when a group of uh, Ukrainian immigrants uh, uh, rallied downtown. Some of them broke off and went over to Coca-Cola headquarters. But now Coca-Cola, the Coca-Cola company has said, yep, we've got to stop doing business in Russia now. Yeah, the thing with, with uh, Coca-Cola was that they were giving money to help with Ukrainian relief and yet um, still doing business over there. Uh, so and on the, uh, the floor of the House and, and the Senate this, this week and the last week or so, we've seen a big push for uh, making sure Coca-Cola makes a change. And that happened. Actually, uh, Representative Wes Cantrell has this um, bottle, six pack of bottles of Coke that he's been bringing to the floor to um, to emphasize, first of all, that he he felt that Coke should make this decision to pull to pull out of Russia. But then yesterday, thanking them and um, holding up a bottle. But the this was um, something that a lot of people really I think wanted. There was a lot of momentum with this, and I think it took them a while. But I think that a lot of people are happy they came to this decision. Um, we should also point out, Amy, that the legislature yesterday passed two pieces of legislation condemning the Russian attacks on uh, Ukraine, uh, which, uh, which they called in the language senseless, barbaric uh, violence. And I, I believe, and tell me if I'm wrong, Donna, also supporting the cutoff of, 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 of the purchasing Russian uh, uh, oil, right? Right, right, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, that became a big discussion in our newsroom of how to say Belarusians because because that was part yeah. of it too. Um, so. <laughs> Amy, let me. We're running out of time. Amy, quick comment from you. Um, I think it shows that right. There's a lot of times where, as a nation, right, we do come together, especially on issues like this. And this is one where it is difficult to not feel sympathy and also it, just want it to end. Of the fact that. Ukrainian citizens are being killed. And, and, and Chuck, to go back to a theme we kind of looked at a little earlier, Republicans in Georgia, despite Donald Trump's cheerleading at one point for Putin, are not going there with him. Absolutely not. I can't think of any major Georgia politician who decided to stop on that. All right. We are out of time for today's show. I'm sorry. This is another one of those shows when I'd like to get another hour with all of you. But NPR insists we pass the baton <laughs> off to them. So uh, Amy Steigerwald, Chuck Bullock, uh, Donna Lowry and Kevin Riley, thank you for a terrific conversation on the show today. Um, and uh, we're going to be back, of course, with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. See everybody for another Political Rewind tomorrow.